RadioInfluence.com. Welcome to the debut episode of the Fight HQ podcast with the fighter Pete Rogers here. Of course, I am the reporter Jason Floyd and uh, Pete and I, of course, we've been doing DFS shows for I think Pete about three years now for uh, about the past six months. We've been over at awesomeo.com. Don't worry, we're still at awesomeo.com, but uh, we wanted to create a new show where we can kind of talk about uh, things in the fighting world outside of daily fantasy sports and uh, we'll get a, a fighter's perspective on some of the notable stories going on in MMA. Of course, come here on this week's edition of the show. We're going to talk about Trevin Giles and anxiety in fighters to get a fighter's perspective from Pete, exactly how he feels about that situation. Also, we're going to talk about uh, how the COVID-19 has impacted the gym business, and particularly Pete's going to tell you about how this has impacted him. Also, we'll talk about uh, Tuesday's Contender Series, a season debut of the Contender Series. By the way, it did lose one fighter, uh, Kevin Seiler, who was supposed to be headlining this car as he tested positive for COVID-19. Also, we'll uh, talk about Bellator 243, give a little northeast angle on, on this fight card. Also, we're going to bring that segment we like, uh, what's got us heated? And I feel like it's something that's got us heated uh, before. But uh, Pete, man, how, how you doing on this uh, Monday evening, man? What's going on? I've been in the pool all weekend. I've been doing my laps, uh, you know, staying fit and uh, enjoying the nice weather up here. And tomorrow we're getting hit with your hurricane. So uh, pretty interesting. But, um, you know, j- just enjoying life, man. How, how are you doing? I'm doing good, man. You know, I'm thankful that that, uh, that, that hurricane took a little bit of a, a right turn. Yeah. And so uh, we we didn't have any. Uh, I mean, I, don't, I mean, I think we got a little not hurricane rain, just regular not regular Florida rain, man. It's it's just used to. It. I was glad because today uh, here on Monday is the day one of getting my new privacy fence installed. Oh, and God, so timing that would have been. <laughs> I, I, that, that, it was going down last week. That was my thought. I was like, oh no, man. I'm going. You know, <laughs> I'm supposed to get this fence installed on Monday and. Uh, <laughs> Worst possible time. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, the, yeah. The one thing is, my dog did not like the fence guys in the backyard. He did not. <laughs> he did not like. He was just looking at them all day long. But yeah, man, it's uh, it, it's nice and hot here in Florida. If you need to lose weight, Pete, I'm just come on down to Florida, stand outside for about five minutes. You'll lose some pounds. Oh, absolutely. I love Florida. It's my second home. So, uh, you know, Bree knows that eventually the dream is to get a house down in Florida as well that we can always go down to. Yeah, man, it's uh, I mowed the yard yesterday, not ten o'clock in the morning. It was yeah. like six thirty, and I mean, I was just drenched in sweat. Oh, I'm sure, man. It's Dude. like cutting wood. That's good. <laughs> yeah, man, you try to because I, like, I'll be honest with you, I haven't, I haven't gone back to my regular gym. Yeah, say, I mean, I haven't been to a regular gym in quite some time since COVID hit. You, you think uh, March, and March is when I was forced to close my gym as well. So it's like, man, and it left you with a very, very tough decision with the the statutes and all the the guidelines that needed to be followed from the state. It was next to impossible to do uh, requiring masks for exercise. The two just don't work hand in hand, and it, it really represents a very dangerous problem. Like if somebody has asthma, now you want them to wear a mask and work out in the heat and it's very tough. Then you bring up the square footage of one person per 150 square feet, and now you're talking, you know, slim pickings of how many how many people you can have in your classes. So it was a very tough decision, and uh, you know, unfortunately, I had to close my facility with my pops. So you know, I was 
basically stuck in the house. Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to drive, drive myself crazy not being able to work out. So my girlfriend and I, we created a gym in the, in the garage and I'll be popping a YouTube video up soon. So I want to make sure you guys see the transformation because it's pretty impressive and I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty happy with what we created in the garage where it was a total mess. And now we have a very nice little MMA gym for my own personal training for training. Whereas, you know, you know, if the world ends tomorrow, Jason, I know I have a gym. So my dad and I could train, Bree could train. I'm good. Yeah, I'll tell you, I got an email from my gym the other day, and it was basically like, hey, haven't seen you since we reopened. Uh, we're offering a free personal training session. And, like, I know from my gym aspect, I know they're doing everything they can to make clean, but I remember the people who work out in the gym pre-COVID. Yeah, yeah. And, like, look, when I go to my gym, it's it's more about, you know, hopping on the treadmill, hopping on the elliptical, you know, hopping on the bike. And, you know, not a lot of people exactly, you know, wipe down their gear after dust. Like, that's where I'm at, where I'm like, ah, man, yeah. I don't know if I want to put myself in that situation. It's hard to trust. It's hard to trust people. And it's just the truth. I mean, how many times are you in the bathroom in a public restroom and you see people walk out without washing their hands? And it's, uh, you know, and now you, you think about exercising and, you know, you know, hygiene and everything. And then, like, as far as, like, owning a gym or owning a business, why would somebody want to pay for a martial arts academy, say, you know, $100, $125, $150 a month to A, work out with a mask, um, not be able to have any physical contact. You think of martial arts as a ton of physical contact. Uh, basically, to be put through a bag routine and separated six feet, it's just not the ideal situation for a business. So uh, I, I think the fitness industry is going to be hurting from this for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, unless you're, you know, a fighter. Then it makes yeah. sense because obviously you got to get your work in. I mean, we're going to talk about, you know, where you live up in the Northeast with all these Bellator events going on later on the show. But it's like, it's part of me. Like I, I get this point of like, I, I don't want to put my, I'm trying to limit what I put environments. I put myself in, yeah. um, you know, because look, I, I understand that, you know, I'm sure with football season beginning back open, I'm just waiting for the call of like, Hey, you got to come take the COVID test to make sure you're clean. Um, you know, being a part of the broadcasting crew. So, you know, I'm, you know, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So I'm just waiting on that phone call. I'm sure that'll probably happen once we get closer to the first game. But like, I'm like, I haven't go outside of going to the restaurant that I work for and, and the bar that I work for in terms of marketing, I haven't stepped into a restaurant or a bar a month, month and a half. Yeah, I mean, I would say the same for us. I, I think it's only like essential duties, uh, going to the supermarket, um, you know, visiting our parents. And for a very long time, Jason, I went almost like three, four weeks without seeing my parents or my girlfriend's parents. Like we really wanted to isolate ourselves just in case, God forbid, because I work in the casino and I already know that if somebody had it or encountered it, it was probably me. But uh, the good thing about working at the casino is anybody – that works there or is a tribal member, they offered free uh, antibody tests. So my girlfriend and I and my mom actually went down to go get our antibody tests, still waiting on the results. So that's kind of interesting. I want to know, like, maybe I had this at one time because I actually recall in February feeling horrible. And I remember my mom as well. I had to take her to the hospital at one point. So it would be pretty interesting if it comes back that she has it and I could kind of connect the dots on why the hospital and every, everybody was a little surprised and, you know, taken back of, of her symptoms and everything. I mean, her blood pressure was through the roof and it was just crazy. 
Yeah, I know somebody. I know somebody who who had it. I wasn't around him, but knew somebody who had it. And he told me what what happened with him. Uh, I was around somebody who was exposed to it. So when they told me, and they ended up testing negative, they didn't get it. But when they told me, it was like a mind f for me. Like yeah. all of a sudden, and and, I, and I've talked to people who've been exposed to it. And they just and their test ended up coming back negative, and they said it's like your mind starts playing tricks on you. Like you start thinking all the symptoms that we read about. You're like, oh, I felt it. I remember yeah. when when I got told by the person I was around, I was like, hold on, am I getting a sore throat? Yeah, your heart <laughs> drops. You start really like getting paranoid. Yeah, uh, I know. It, it's a crazy thing, and. I think the most difficult thing for this virus is just how it's hard to track and it's hard to contain. You know, it's almost impossible to contain and probably we're all going to experience it at one time or another. But, uh, you know, you have to feel for the elderly or your parents. Like for me, for my parents, I don't want anything to happen to them. So, I mean, if something happens to me and I get I'm not worried about me. I'm worried about giving it to somebody else and having somebody else, you know, face the consequences, which would be terrible. Yeah, I mean, we've seen it happen in, in the fight industry. Um, you know, obviously here in Florida has become a hotbed, and you know we've seen you know multiple um, fighters in the UFC ultimately not fight because of it. I mean, you know, we talk, you know, you talk about how the gym business has impacted you. I guess we can kind of lead into this. Uh, you know, we we've all seen you at 145 pounds. Anyone who's listened to our show and also, you know, we've kind of hinted about this. The fact of, uh, I guess we would just say uh, if there's a door next to Pete. And that door is 145 pounds. It's closed. <laughs> yeah, that, that thing's boarded up, Jason. Okay, that thing is boarded up. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have to be at 55 going forward. Um, you know, the quarantine was different and it was interesting. I mean, you weren't able to work out or get back to your normal routine. So I think naturally people put on weight for quarantine, but I didn't put on necessarily bad weight. I've been working out almost every day during quarantine. So it's just... I'm getting older, man. I'm 30 now, and the days of 145 pounds, my dad made a joke. He's like, your days of 145 pounds are as far as mine for 145 pounds, and it's been quite some time. So, uh, you know, as you get older, you, you start maturing, you grow up, and you've seen that with fighters. I mean, look at Conor McGregor. When he was making 145, he looked like Skeletor and actually looked pretty unhealthy. And, uh, you know, he moved up to 55, looks healthy, and actually has taken some fights at 70. So I think it's natural for most fighters. Yeah, I, I've talked to people who have said, he goes, hey, man, you need to talk to Pete. Pete, Pete needs to go up to 55. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, there, there was there was people that said, man, we, we know Pete's cut a lot of weight to get down to 45. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, but I think that's ultimately what we're seeing in the fight industry of, and this is even, even before the pandemic, of, of fighters just saying, like, look at Gilbert Burns. Perfect example. Why, why are you going to you know, cut that additional weight to, at 55? And look what he's done at 70. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because let's pull up somebody like Frankie Edgar. He was notorious for never cutting weight, right? Mm -hmm. And then kind of faced a roadblock of a path to the title or a path to the elite in the division, right? And then at the end of his career, decides he's going to start cutting weight just like Jose Aldo. Now he's thinking at 135. So it's pretty crazy for a guy that was so adamant that, you know, I'm just going to fight at my natural weight now to be you know searching for answers at a lower weight class where he probably should have been all along based on his height and everything but it's so different how each fighter 
you know, values that question and how they react to it. Like some guys think that, you know, wrestling base cut a ton of weight, you know, and, and some other guys say, you know what, I, I feel good at this weight. And uh, boxers don't cut a tremendous amount of weight, whereas wrestlers do. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see what Frankie looks like. I mean, before you know, of course, he's supposed to uh, fight uh, Pedro Munoz here coming up here later on later on this month, and he looked absolutely shredded. I remember I, I sent you an Instagram photo, <laughs> and I was like, "Man, Frankie is looking shredded at 35." I mean, and look, I know that's a tough fight. But think about this: two years ago, if I would have told you Jose Aldo would make 135 pounds, you would have said I was crazy. Yeah. I, well, you have to think, right? How many of these guys, well, Frankie's the exception, but like Jose Aldo struggled to make 145 pounds plenty of times. So to think and to try to ma- uh, wrap your head around that he's going to get down another 10 pounds, I was just like, this guy is going to look horrible. Think about Edson Barboza dropping weight class as well. So it's very interesting. Especially as a fighter ages in yeah. their career, you ne- you never think about, hey, they're going to go down a weight. You always think they're going to go up. I think naturally it should be the other way around. Um, I think they're both – they're also talented that they can get away with it for most fights. But just because you go down in weight doesn't necessarily mean you are going to have easier fights. And same thing when you're going up in weight. How many people think that they can go up to heavyweight and smash everybody because they're slow? And it doesn't always work out that way. Well. Didn't work out for Gustafsson. No, didn't, no, it's not. <laughs> didn't work out for OSP. Didn't work out for John Volante. Even though yeah. Volante was, he was pretty close to getting that, that victory there in the third round. Yeah, I have to say for Gustafsson though, like, didn't he look pretty good as a heavyweight, like size wise? Mm-hmm, I was like, mm-hmm. man, it looks like he's really just filled out. I don't think that he looks horrible. I just think it was the matchup, and uh, Fabricio knows he wanted nothing to do with him on the feet, and. Uh, it's a very smart game plan, man. That's what happens when you have a world champion on the mat. I thought he had a little bit of the dad bod going on, though. Yeah, but, you know, the, the girls love the dad bod, Jason, and the dad bod is rocking. And uh, if you can excel, I mean, think about Cormier. Cormier does not look like the most physically imposing human being, and he is he was the heavyweight champion of the world. So, uh, you know, looks are deceiving. And, uh, you know, man bod's popular right now. <laughs> It, that that is that is very true. Um, but uh, you know, as I was uh, sitting on the couch on Saturday night, as uh, main card started, we're all waiting for Kevin Holland and Trevin Giles to make the walk, and and then Trevin Giles doesn't make the walk as he as he faints right before it. You know, the commission calls the fight, um, and then after, and then here on Monday, uh, he was doing an Instagram video where he said there was irregularities in his heart, where he said this. They ended up telling me that I have some irregularities in my heart and that seemed to be the center of the issues I was I was having on fight night. I'm trying to get with a cardiologist so we can get everything cleared up. Um, you know, when when I read his quote, I, I guess like the first thing that came to mind was like I remember Heidi Andrew on the broadcast talking about how his corner and himself were still trying to fight, even though this happened. Um, but, but look, you faint backstage and you know, this Pete, there, there's a commission is not going to let you fight. Oh no, absolutely not. I mean, when that happened, I was like, there's no way they're going to let, he just passed out. Well, imagine if he, you know, they let him and then he goes out there and gets choked out or knocked out like the worst possible thing that would never, ever happen. Um, but you know, as far as anxiety in the back, it's a tough, 
it's a tough thing to deal with and every fighter's different. Uh, music helps a lot of fighters, including myself. Um, basically finding a routine that you like and sticking to it and kind of like meditating a little bit and just getting your mind off of the fight. I mean, think about it. It's crazy what an MMA fight actually is. And I know it's basically the same thing as in the training room, but when the pressure's on and the bright lights and the audience and the cameras and things change, Jason. And uh, sometimes that pressure gets to you. Early on when I was starting my career, um, you know, I definitely felt like, oh my goodness. I mean, I made my debut for Bellator, my professional debut for Bellator. I was a kickboxer. I didn't have any ground game at all. Okay. And I'm transparent about that when I started off and I took the fight based on opportunity and I'm happy I did because it got my feet wet with a nice promotion, but it was a lot to deal with at once. You talk about one of the best organizations in the world. You got TV. It's just everything, everything behind it in the promotion is crazy. So sometimes that pressure can break you or, you know, help you out. But, uh, you know, it happens a lot on the regional scene, Jason, where a lot of fighters pull out when they're supposed to walk out. A lot of fighters pull out when they're in the back. Not so much on the high end, but like regionally, you'll see a ton of fighters, you know, either fake injuries or get sick or something comes up when they're right before they're supposed to make that walk. So it's pretty common. Wasn't there an incident like in CES, like within like the last two years or so? Where like there was a situation and like the fighter fell down like down the stairs or something. Yeah, yeah, not for CES, but yes. Let's just leave it at that. Yes. <laughs> like I just I I like it just it vaguely came to my mind. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and uh, crazy things happen sometimes in the back. And uh, man, Kevin Holland had some crazy accusations, thinking that Trevin Giles was in the back and purposely held his breath to pass out so that he didn't have to face him in the cage. Like, come on, man, have a little sensitive. Like, what happens if this guy, Trevin Giles, has something wrong with his heart, some heart irregularities? You know, let's let's be – let's not be so self- – I know it's about fighting and you're trying to mm-hmm. provide your, your family and it's a selfish sport. But let's look at the bigger picture here. If he has something wrong with him, I'm happy that he's under such a professional organization that can get to the bottom of it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of my other thoughts was kind of like, you know, if you're the Nevada Commission, do you look at and say, did we miss something in the medical side leading up to this event? Did we not, you know, does the commission have to look at their protocols and say, okay, what did we miss here? How did, if this was something that, you know, it's irregularities in the heart, how did a doctor not come across that? I think that's got, and I'm, and I'm sure I'll be like, we talk about COVID and like you're, you're, you're worried about, you know, that 12 hours, 24 hours where you get tests. If you're Trevin Giles right now, like what's going through his mind? Is, is he having a mindset of like, is my career over? Nah, he shouldn't. Not at all. Um, I mean, it's tough to say no though. I, I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, it's tough to think how an EKG wouldn't pick up on something like that. Um, but your body changes every day. And just because, you know what I mean? Like anything can happen. And stress can definitely bring out the worst for your body. So perhaps it's stress-induced, but I hope everything's okay with him. And uh, I'll definitely keep an update on that. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you hear irregularities in the heart, that that's kind of – that's concerning. Uh, but yeah. Co- Kevin Holland is going to get a fight. He's going to take on Joaquin Buckley, who's coming off a win in LFA, had fought in Bellator. That That's coming up uh, this weekend. But, I mean, 
I, I guess the other thing is, and obviously because it's not just your fighter, but you, you coach fighters, how would you handle that if that was one of your fighters? Well, obviously the fighter, Giles probably woke up, realized what's going on. It's like, okay, I need to get ready for my fight, even though they had already called it. And it's the fighter's instinct to want to continue to fight, just like when a fight is stopped. Most of the, no, not many times you'll see the fighter say, okay, thank you. Thank you for that. They want to, they want to keep fighting no matter what's going on. And you know, same for me. I, I want to keep fighting. And, you know, the corner's there to support the fighter, but also protect the fighter. I definitely would have been like, you know, I'd have to know my fighter. So maybe they know something that I don't, but it's definitely concerning when your guy passes out. There's no way I would let my guy continue. No and, and what just wasn't Trevin Giles, Jojo Calderwood passed out yeah. after her after her fight as well. So I think she okay, I'm not trying to make a joke right now, Jason, but I think that she passed out because of how much of an opportunity she gave up just to stay active. Think about what you said. Like she gave up a title fight just because she wanted to stay active and stay relevant. And uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. I mean, if she won and looked great, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But now she skipped for the title match and didn't really need to take this fight at all. Just had to be patient. And, and there's no guarantees that you work your way back to that. Time. I mean, you you know how I mean, in, in athletics. I mean. That's why I think anytime as a you know a fighter's aspect, if you've got that title shot, and obviously the 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 fight was postponed because of Valentina having the injury. I mean, I understand there's a financial component to all this, but this is where like you know I would love to know what was the conversation between JoJo, her her uh, fiance and head coach John Wood, and her manager in in terms of the pros and cons of taking this fight, because like you, you always talk about this when we do the DFS show, it just takes one punch and it completely changes the fight. Yeah. And we talked about it on the DFS show is of how, you know, Jojo would have to deal with the pressure of Jennifer Maya. And then if she would ultimately look for the takedown to kind of basically calm things down, she did just that. And I was worried about her getting submitted off of her back and Jennifer Maya threw up a sick arm bar. That's, it happens so much in the women's division and that, you know, it takes one I feel like the fights are so close and one mistake. Now you just threw away the title fight. I feel for Jojo. I really do. And, uh, hindsight's 2020, man. But I definitely, if I was given a title fight, there's no way I'm giving that up no matter what. Okay. How long I have to wait. Okay. More time for me to get better, more time for me to prepare, more time for me to study. You know, also on Saturday night, we saw Edmund Shabazian lose for the first time in his career. And I know we didn't we didn't talk about talking about this, but I'll just bring it up because I think it'd be interesting to kind of hear your thoughts on it. After a second round, he looks done, just looks done. And like I always say, is like you got about a one percent chance a corner's actually going to stop a fight. Yeah. Um. And I don't. I, I like how Herb Dean came in quickly and stopped that fight. Yeah. Um, you know, but from your perspective, a for, obviously the fighter wants to fight. You want to go out there and, and who knows, maybe you can change this thing around. But also I look at the core aspect. I go, I would love to know their thought process and why they felt they should send their fighter out there for, for the third round. Yeah. I mean, it looked to me that 
that Herb Dean waved the fight off and the fight was done. Like he waved his hand and went like, so I thought the fight should have been stopped right there. I don't care that there's two seconds, one second right at the bell. You know, he didn't look good. I think the fight should have been stopped, but it wasn't. And in Herb's defense, okay, maybe I'll give him this minute to recover. If the corner chooses to send him out there and he takes any punishment at all, I'm going to hop in there early. And that's what he did. So props to Herb Dean on that. I think that's the the correct way of uh, of going about that type of situation. Now, as far as the corner, man, you're talking about how much you have riding on the line and how much pressure, right? So you're, you're managed by Ronda Rousey. You have an undefeated fighter. The last thing you want to do is ruin an undefeated fighter's record by corner stoppage. That will be, like, unforgivable. Now, he looked out. He fell off the stool. He went back on the stool, and he was just blank staring. Um, The doctor probably should have stopped the fight by talking to him as well. And I think that's kind of like Herb was like, you know, talk to him and uh, hoping – that somebody would make the decision for him. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, it's tough, man. It's so tough. But he's so young. He doesn't need to take excess punishment because guess what? If he goes out there and gets another round like that, you're, you're starting to chip away at that young career of his and starting to catch him up to the years of the vets. And you understand what I'm saying? This is the other thing about Herb Dean. And, and I don't know if it plays into this or not, but you look at what happened with the Francisco Trinaldo situation, you know, two weeks ago with Ja Herbert, you know, and you see the fact of how that ended the way it did and, and all the criticism that was, you know, levied toward Herb Dean. And, and now you got this one. Like, I, I look at like Mark Goddard. I believe Mark Goddard is now letting fights go a little longer yeah. since. Colby Covington came out and had his transgressions about Mark Goddard in his fight uh, against Usman. And look, it's only natural, but I, I, I think we should commend Herb Dean for stopping the fight as quickly as he did in the third round. I, I just think it's like, I, I wonder what is it going to take to where we see a turn in MMA like we see in boxing, where a boxing trainer is ready to throw in the towel. Yeah. Like, could you name five times in an MMA career where you've seen a corner thrown a towel? The last one the UFC I can remember off the top of my mind is UFC 180. Trevor Whitman telling Nate Marquardt he wasn't sending yeah. him back out there. That's that's exactly what I was going to bring up of uh, Trevor Whitman. Incredible. And why did he do that? Because he has a boxing background. Uh, it's just like the boxing mentality. And I think perhaps it's only because you have three rounds to work with, and maybe the rounds have to have a, an effect on uh the corner's decision so like say you have a 12 round fight for boxing and your guy's getting beat up round after round after round round eight round nine come you're like okay i can't keep sending him out here he's getting destroyed so they step in and they do it mma fight you only have 15 minutes and you know you have three rounds so say he ruins round rounds one good round two he loses bad round three you know what i mean like it's it's crazy. I think the sh- if it's a title fight, I could see it happening more – or main or main event. I could see it happening more than a three-round fight. I think three-round fight is going to take quite some time. You know, we did see uh, at least one questionable scorecard, uh, the, the Munoz and Manis fight. I, I don't know how many people scored that fight. You know, I would love – this is where, like – 
I would love for a judge have to go publicly explain their scorecard after the fact because I don't know how you get that that fight card twenty nine twenty seven. You know, he had a draw uh, in the very first sign night, Chris Gutierrez versus uh, Cody Dern. I'm actually talking to Chris Gutierrez tomorrow, so I'm interested to kind of uh, you know get his take, especially on that first round of kind of what was going through his mind. I mean, he dominated rounds two and three. I think there's no question about this. Yeah. And uh, Hunter Man had asked this question, who always uh, sends in questions on our DFS show in Osmo. He says, in theory, what are the ways in which, one, the UFC can move to a pride scoring format, the fights are correctly judged as a whole, two, judges and ref can be made better, corners can be trained via force to protect their fighters as in reasonable. Thank you. Um, look, I think in terms of changing the scoring system, that had to be done by the Association of Boxing Commissions and Combative Sports. Um, I know that there is a lot of discussion on what to be done. Over my years of talking to regulators, I, I my takeaway is that they say it's about the people working the fights and you know making sure that you've got the right people working fights. I mean, I, I think that one of the questions I think I have, just in terms of our uh, of MMA as a whole, is how if I said name the ten best judges and the ten best refs, could could anyone do that? Um, refs more than the judges just because the names over the years kind of get jumbled around. But uh, well, here's here's a problem with the UFC and refs. It's basically the same two or three refs that are getting every main event. Yeah. Well, they, they're basing it on experience too. You know, I mean, the more UFC experience, the more the UFC wants you. And uh, the UFC really doesn't want to trust newbies, if that's the term you want to call them. Uh, you know, it, it's crazy, but I think the only solution that I would honestly like, because pride scoring, like judging the whole fight, you know, like judging the fight as a whole, I don't see that ever happening. I really don't see that ever happening. The one thing that I could see happening is live scoring. After each round, they post it, which I know the commissions aren't too fond of because they don't want backlash on the judges. But at the end of the round, let the fighters know how that went. Put it up on the screen. So they look. They say, oh, boy, I lost that round? Okay. Well, what the heck? You know what I mean? But at least you know. There's no surprises. Okay. So Kansas, the Kansas Athletic Commission is doing it. They've done it with Invicta. Let, let's just say it for you. Let's put you in that position. Let's just say for, you know, just making it out there that Mike Mazzoli says, we're going to do it Mohegan. You're fighting in Mohegan. You know, just hypothetically saying. How quickly could they get the score to you in your corner? I don't, I don't think you need to put it, you know, like tell the corner. I think you put it on the, the screen or whatnot, and it's your corner's duty to let you know if you won or lost that round. Like I'm not saying the fighters need to sit there and stare at the TV screen. My job should be about focusing on the fight. My corners can look and say, they didn't score that round for him? Okay. And as you're talking, say, hey, Pete, we're down one. We need these last two. Now, whatever you tell me, as a coach, isn't going to influence the judges. You know what I'm saying? And we're not going to avoid saying some things because we're afraid that it might alter their scoring. Uh, you could just be frank with somebody and say, look, it, we're down two rounds. You need this final round. You need to finish. And I think that would really help fighters out and it would let them know where they stand in the fight because half the time, if it's a close fight, it goes to the decision you really don't know. And that's terrible. I suffered a split decision loss 
in my kickboxing career back when I was 18. And I remember I'm like, oh, boy, no, we're not here. I'm, one, George scored, uh, one judge scored it for him. George scored it for me. And I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And then I hear the, the other corner, and I'm like, oh, goodness. And it's the worst feeling ever because you know it was a close, close fight. Yeah, it's uh... – I, I think there are there are people on the regulatory side that want more transparency. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, and, and I think it's – but also I feel like I, – I think that we could progress as a sport if we heard from judges more, if we heard from referees more to explain their decision. There's – I think there's no question that the commissions don't want them talking publicly, you oh, know. Because especially if you get in a situation of what happens if a fighter uh, appeals something and that judge or ref has done an interview. I'll, I'll never forget um, Rob Hines. So when Bellator did their pay-per-view um, outside of Memphis, Tennessee, it was – you had – the main event was Rampage and King Mo. You know, close, you know, very questionable decision either way. Um, and you had Will Brooks and Michael Chandler on that card. Quest, you know, you know, close fight as well. And I remember I reached out to Rob Hines and I said, "Hey, man, I, because I, I, I knew he was one of the judges working the event." I said, "Hey, would you be willing to talk about your card?" He goes, "Yeah," and I was blown away. Couldn't believe it. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Um, props to him for that. Uh, it almost opens a big can of worms, though. That's why I think if you or you have to have somebody to explain it. You know what I mean? Like maybe you have the commissioner to explain it or there needs to be more clear criteria of why decisions are going the way they are. And I don't know if we're ever really going to reach that unless we start doing a point system where it de- it takes the opinion and the background of the judges. So say uh, a jiu-jitsu judge a boxing judge and you know a kickboxing judge are are there they're all going to see the fight differently i think brendan shaw brought this up on his podcast like they're all going to be looking for different things and that's the problem of when you leave it in the hands of somebody to interpret what they're seeing rather than giving them you know what i mean like maybe they gave matt can you imagine if they did like a point system of like two points to take everything with stats everything with stats does that mean the guy who stops 10 takedowns gets credit for stopping those 10 takedowns attempts? I don't know, but think about like how DraftKings and FanDuel is, right? Mm-hmm. Like, imagine if that was actually implemented in real life. Like, this is a problem with our scoring system in MMA. There is so much value put on a takedown and not enough value put on someone who oh. stops a takedown. Oh, you'll never get you will never ever ever get awarded for defending because you're on the defense. Yeah, I mean and- like you could be in a three-round fight, Pete. Your opponent has gone for 10 takedowns in the first 14 minutes of the fight. You have stopped every takedown. But yeah. if they get you down that last minute of the fight, that takedown is weighed so much more heavier than what you did the previous 10 attempts. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know. I think the only way around that is like we're saying, like awarding actual points for strikes or moves or whatnot. And I know it's pretty crazy to think of a DraftKings or FanDuel score implemented in real life, but that would take out the opinions of the judges. If you, you know what I'm saying? And that, but it'd be hard to do that. It'd be very, very hard to do that. Look, we, we always like to talk about what's got us heated. 
Oh God, here we go. <laughs> I've done this one before. Here's what I want to know. Bro. Are fight metrics employees banned from playing daily fantasy sports? Because please explain to me how Chris Gutierrez was not credited with at least one, if not two knockdowns. I don't know. But if they're able to play, I'm going to friend request them. And uh, (laughs) no, you know what I mean? Like you would have to imagine that they're not allowed to play. But I really don't know what fights they're watching sometimes. Now, if you look at that one knockdown that Gutierrez had, and I was doing it in slow motion, I swear. You can see Durden's foot start to slip yeah, before yeah. he gets hit. And I'm like, that's their way around around that uh, knockdown. Um, it's crazy, though. And, you know, we talk about the Jared Gordon situation of how they didn't count any of those uh, strikes as significant. What's significant nowadays? I mean, if you punch me in the face, I think that's pretty significant. It is. It is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I just look at that and I just, th- there's times when you, you have the unofficial stats and when the official stats come out and like the Jared Gordon, it was like, they took away like 70 significant strikes. I'm like, we're not talking a little bit, Jason, we're talking about a ton of strikes. Like that's ridiculous. Yeah. There, you know how us DFS players are. We're going to be pissed. Cause you just cost us a lot of points. <laughs> oh yeah. I guarantee you. I would have had an amazing weekend if they awarded Gordon his actual score. Well, we might have had an amazing weekend if Kevin Holland fought. Oh my gosh! So that's what that's what has me heated is just how if you rostered Trevin Giles or Kevin Holland in your lineups, you have a zero and uh, that's it. There's no way around it. You're not getting anything. You're not getting reimbursed. Now I know that they'll probably do some promotional thing for everybody that played in that contest, but that's not the same when you have a ton of lineups and you're banking on. Uh, let's say 600 points, 550 points at least to cash, and you can't get there because you have a big fat zero. You were better off taking any of the other underdogs than Kevin Holland or Trevin Giles, and that is crazy. And should it be like that, man? Dude, I had Kevin Holland in an MVP spot on FanDuel. Yeah. I was like, well, that lineup's dead. <laughs> yeah, I had such a nice little recipe on FanDuel. And what I like to do is I like to find like my core over there. And since you can basically find all your fighters and then put any of them in that MVP spot and it doesn't change their salary necessarily. So I find my six that I like over there and I just boom and then put the next person in the captain spot. And I had Kevin Holland in every single one. And I'm just like, man, I was better off throwing a bonfire and just burning all my money. Yeah, DraftKings is doing a free roll for on Saturday and they're going to give away – tickets to the millionaire contest for UFC 252, which I'm going to tell you right now, I'm all on Daniel Cormier on that one. Yeah, me too. Me too. Give me DC. Um, I'm excited for that fight. Incredible fight. If it was in the 30 foot cage, I'd probably still be on DC. I am, but in the short cage in the, in the 25 footer, give me DC all day. Yeah. I still give me DC. Um, yeah, I was talking to my pops about the the DraftKings situation. He's like, you can't blame them though from a business. You know, this is the most free money ever that they could basically get, and you can't blame them. And it's in the rules technically because oh, it's just you know, like if you have a baseball game that gets canceled. Yeah, exactly. You know? I mean, but 
guy who expected that somebody would faint. Now, on the show, I said I was a little underweight on that fight, but of course, I still had plenty of it. Uh, you know, it hurts, but you know, I guess, like you always say, always never a dull moment in MMA. Like, there's never a dull moment. In Dude, MMA. it was crazy 48 hours. I mean, they lose, you know, Gerald Mershart testing positive for COVID. The fight's pulled, you know, an hour before the event's supposed to start. Um, you know, which I, I think when you see that situation, I guess you kind of go, if he tested negative all throughout the week, then how did he become positive? Right. And also he's at the weigh-ins next to, you know, you think about who he's next to, mm-hmm. you, know, Dana, you know what I mean? Like, and you have Dana White there at the weigh-ins and notorious for not wearing a mask. It, it's just crazy. So you know that sometimes it takes a little bit for COVID to show up, but I guarantee you he was around other fighters. So that's just very scary. Uh, you know, it's in Vegas and they seem not to have the best luck. Dana called it the craziest week ever in history. Bro, they, they, they have problems. It, it, whatever it's in that Vegas air, man, they just seem to just run into some of these problems. Of course, speaking of Vegas, Tuesday night, we got the return of Dana White's Contender series, uh, obviously, this is I, I love watching these fights because you know in this in this pandemic world, a lot of these guys were all just kind of hoping uh, Dustin Jacoby, you know, going to get a chance here to get back into the UFC. Uh, he's been fighting in glory. He won ten thousand dollars in a one night uh, heavyweight tournament that he took on, I think, like two days notice, uh, mm-hmm. where he had to win a MMA fight, a boxing fight, and a kicking uh, kickboxing matchup. All in one night. Look, as I say this, like, go find me on the regional scene where you can make ten thousand dollars in one night. Hey, Jason, if you find one, sign me up, okay? <laughs> because uh, that's some nice cash in the regional scene. Uh, Dustin Jacoby in this fight, I love him in this fight, and I've actually been a fan of his. Just like watching him over, you know, in Glory and working his kickboxing, you've seen a ton of growth over the years. Uh, UFC vet, technically. But, uh, you know, looking to get back in the UFC, and I think he can do it here. All he has to do is keep the fight standing, um, and I think that he can really take out Ty Flores. I mean, Dustin Jacoby's hands and kicks have come such a long way. Like, he's always been skilled, but, man, I was watching that fight against Cody East that happened uh, back in uh, June, last June, actually. And his hands look good. His takedown defense look good. Ty Flores comes in at 7-2. and two. I like Dustin Jacoby here a lot. I really think that this is moment, man. And I'm happy he's getting the shot. I think Dana White's contender series is perfect for him. It's kind of the guy that Dana wants in that division. Yeah, he he talked to him when I talked to him um, two weeks ago. You know, he said he's like, man, you know, way I was surprised. I, you know, I didn't think that you know when I when I got the call from my manager, I didn't necessarily think that I'd be the type of fighter they would bring in because he'd already been there. Um, probably the funniest thing was he talked about. He's like, I mentioned about his last MMA fight before Cody East was back in 2015 against John Salter. He's like, yeah, he whipped my ass. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, Jordan Levitt versus uh, Jose Flores. I've talked to Jordan Levitt now on a couple occasions. Uh, the big question mark with Jordan Levitt is what happens if the fight doesn't go to the ground? Um, yeah, he's made me. I, I think it was two fights ago was the first time he's taken a punch in a fight. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, Jose Flores is a tricky southpaw, but definitely had a very, very tough opponent when Jose Flores fought on the contender series. And, uh, 
you know, this isn't an easy matchup. And when he fought for Vola on the contender series, he was getting taken down and, you know, held down and put in terrible positions. And that's kind of where Jordan Levitt thrives is on the mat. So if Jordan can take him down, I think you could see a repeat performance, um, you know, of what happened to Flores in his first contender series bout. So Jordan Levitt has an incredible ground credentials and really looks good. But like you said, if it's forced to stay on the feet, how, many, how much improvements has he really made and how, how does he look? Um, can he get by and just kind of press Jose Flores against the cage? Is really all you need the striking for when you're a grappler is to, to cover that distance, to get in close, to cover that space, and uh, you know just disguise the takedowns and get a hold of them. Yeah, uh, Jerome Rivera, Luis Rodriguez. I talked to Jerome Rivera. Um, if you watch his fight against uh, Brandon Royal, where he breaks his arm, I had to watch the clip like four or five times, and I and I asked him about it, and he just he's like, man, it just kind of a freak thing that kind of happened. He's like, man, I was feeling good leading up to that moment. Uh, he he's got a big fight coming out of uh, that uh, New Mexico scene. Uh, yep. Mikey Gonzalez had a, had a fun conversation with him uh, the other day, uh, him in this spot and, uh, Kenny Cross, who was supposed to take on Kevin Sauer. Now he gets, uh, Demonte Robinson, Kenny Cross, the lights out championship out of Michigan. Uh, they're, they're lightweight champion. Uh, but overall, I'm just looking forward to watching these fights on tomorrow night. Yeah. Some hungry guys looking to make a splash and finally get into the big show and some interesting matchups. But if I really look at each of them, it almost looks like striker grappler in almost every single one, and who's really going to implement their game plan? Yeah, uh, but I'm I'm looking forward to watching the fights uh, coming up on uh, Tuesday night. Also looking forward to watching the Bellator fights yeah. on Friday night uh, there at the Mohegan Sun. Benson Henderson, Michael Chandler, the rematch uh, going to be taking place here. Benson Henderson, two to one betting underdog. Also, you got Curtis Millender versus Bahamasi, uh, Georgia Carahania versus Miles Jury. Matt Mistrion versus Timothy Johnson, but wanted to put kind of put a little Northeast spin on, on uh, this discussion point here because to me, Northeast fighters are in a very similar situation that Las Vegas and California based fighters are right now. Where if you're a Northeast based fighter and you have the ability to take a fight in Bellator, you have to be getting ready this week just in case someone pulls out and you might have an opportunity to step in on two or three days' notice. Prime example, Raz Helton. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, if you're in Vegas and you're not training, you're silly because the Contender Series, uh, you also think about UFC Vegas. You need to be training if you're in that area. Same thing as everybody up here in New England. I I'm training because you never know what can happen. And, uh, you know, you have some other fighters that are that are training and, and, you know, looking to jump on opportunities. Literally anything can happen in this sport. And, uh I, I, I'm training just because I love to train, but man, Bellator is in your backyard. You never know what can happen. Um, it, everybody in New England should be training. And I'm sure some guys are. I mean, Bellator's basically found us a home at Mohegan Sun, and they have fighters up in the hotel. Uh, everybody's like quarantined, and it's almost like their own apex center, essentially. Yeah, I was talking to uh, Mike Hamill. Is going to be taking on um, Adam Borex. I was talking to him today, and he's like, "Yep, quarantine in my hotel room. I got, you know, got away here." And, and of course, you know, their their regulations are basically it's either you're in your hotel room or you're in the Mohegan Sun Arena because that's where they've they've got it set up where fires can work out. They've got saunas and and things along those lines. And, and I'll say this: kudos to Bellator on television. That doesn't even look like the Mohegan Sun Arena. 
I love it. I I love it. As a guy, as a guy who's fought in the arena, man, probably ten times now between my kickboxing and my MMA fights. I love that arena. That is my place, and uh, it looks so good on TV. I don't know what they did, but it really looks good. Like if you watch UFC Vegas and you see how the Apex Center looks and how cool. They did something really, really neat with uh, with Bellator and Mohegan Sun. So props to them. You know, it's just an incredible thing that they're doing. And uh, props to uh, Mr. Mazzulli putting everybody through the regulations and everything, and uh, making sure everything's safe. It looks like a an intimate scene. Yeah, yeah, it does. You know, like it, it just you know, and obviously this is this is the world we live in. Like I was watching um, basketball last night, and I'm sitting there going. If you didn't know, you wouldn't realize there were not fans in attendance. I know. The basketball is a little weird, though. When they have, like, the digital fans like that, it's okay. weird. Hold on. Did you see the digital fan hold up a beer? No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't see that. <laughs> but it's so weird, man. I, it's like that's kind of tripping me out. I feel like I'm playing, like, NBA Jam or something with some terrible audience. But they're they're doing a good job of, of piping in crowd noise and uh... – can you imagine playing? You almost must think like, dang, this is corny. Like they, this, they make a bucket and you hear this, like this chant. And then it's, it's like, man, that's kind of corny, but yeah, they were talking, uh, Van Gundy was talking about how during warmups, it is like eerily quiet. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, they should have that, you know, that pre game playlist bumping. You know, like the jock jams or whatever they usually have going. So, so when the Buccaneers did training camp in Orlando, we did it under uh, John Gruden over there. So, like where you see the MLS fields, um, so you've got that is the the where they do like all the AU football and things along those lines. That's where MLS is at. Next to it is what was known when we were over there was the Milk House, which that's where all the NBA games are. And then the next building over is the baseball stadium. So yeah. it just kind of it just shows you because I remember like when we did training camp over there, um, we would walk from the football fields. We would go through the milk house to get to the stadium because well we wanted to walk through AC. We didn't want to walk through hot sun, <laughs> and they would have AAU basketball going on. And I would tell you, you named the college coach; they were there. Yeah, that's cool. That is so cool. And uh, you know, I love I I love sports. I, I it was a very tough time when we didn't have sports, and you had. Even if you think of like a DraftKings thing, we're sitting there gambling on Counter Strike and League of Legends, and I'm like, what? What has the world come to? But those were fun. You were. But, I was not. Yeah, I actually did pretty good. Not as good as Alex, but uh, I did pretty good. And it's just so so awesome to have sports back. And I know it doesn't necessarily feel like the real thing, and they kind of seem like you're watching spring training or you're watching summer. It's weird. Mm-hmm. Um. But I think when you start seeing the the teams get into it a little bit, the first couple were weird. But like as the games start to mean more, I think you're gonna see like, wow, this is this isn't that bad, well, you know? Because who knows when we're gonna actually be able to have a crowd, Jason? Yeah, I was watching the um, the Bucks and Rockets game last night, but I mean that was high level basketball. I mean mm-hmm. the the benches are into it. It yeah. was, it was fun to watch. I mean, yeah, I mean it's now it's like I feel like hey, at night I have something I can, I have to watch. Sports every day, bro. It's crazy. I love it. Uh, Dude, I was know, I was here sitting in the office watching the Tampa Bay Lightning game this afternoon. Yeah, see, that's cool. I didn't even realize. Yeah, hockey's back too. 
man. See, that's one sport. Like, I grew up, and my babysitter at the time used to bring me to all the Hartford Whalers games. Okay. But I can't tell you how to even, you know, play hockey. Like, literally, if you want to beat me up, throw some ice skates on me, and I am horrible. Like, my friend, we, we went ice skating one time, and my friend was literally skating around me, punching me in the legs because I couldn't do anything. And I would just keep falling, and I'm, like, terrified of the ice. There was one time I crashed on the ice so bad, and my two front teeth went right into the ice. And the only thing that kept my teeth in my mouth were my braces. So I have, like, PTSD when it comes to the ice. Most exciting sports event I've ever gone to, Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals. Man, see, you think, like, I would actually be into hockey because we're not too far from Boston. Uh, I'm telling you, Mm. playoff hockey is it's the intensity of it is unreal. Like, like before I, I started working in radio, I yeah. couldn't care less about hockey. Just mm-hmm. I'm being completely honest. And then, so um, one of my jobs I had to do is essentially I had to go to every home game. And so basically that's how I learned the game of hockey was just going every yeah. game. And then during the, the 2004 run, the lightning had to winning the cup that game seven was unreal. Like you were on the edge of your seat every shot. I mean, it's, it's cool. I feel like it's a great live sport and, um, you know, I would love to go to an actual hockey game with somebody that can, you know, tell me what the heck is going on. Cause I really feel like such a noob you, when you, I'm there. You need to hit up ribs. I think ribs could uh, teach you some things. Yes, that's true. My coach, Greg, he's the biggest hockey guy. If he's listening to this right now, he's shaking his head in disappointment. I, I think there's a sport Greg doesn't like. Yeah, he's a big hockey guy, though. Yeah. Actually, he was a very, very talented hockey guy. And, you know, I, that's basically his crossover of just being a tough guy and getting into martial arts. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, uh, Greg, Greg's always a, a fun chat with. That's my boy. That is my boy. I love Greg so much. Yeah. But, man, it's just great to have sports back. Of course, uh, coming up on Thursday this week, we'll be back on awesomeo.com for our strategy show for UFC Vegas number six, Alexio Linick, Derek Lewis. Derek Lewis, uh, a little more than a two to one betting favorite in that one. We got Chris Weidman against Omari Akhmedov. Uh, I'm happy to see Chris Weidman back. I'm really, really excited to see Chris Weidman back. Uh, I wouldn't say that this is a layup of a matchup at all, but I think this is, uh, you know, a step in the right direction for him. Yeah, uh, speaking of a, a local kid up there in Northeast, Peter Barrett, he's going to be taking on Yusuf Zalal. Uh, he was initially supposed to take on Steve Garcia. Steve Garcia pulled out of the fight. Now Yusuf Zalal stepping up. One of the interesting oh. things about Yusuf told me is that pretty much it sounds like he's made a decision. He's going to stick at forty five. He's not going to. He's not going to go down to thirty five. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Peter Barrett, when he was supposed to fight Steve Garcia. I actually know a decent amount of Steve Garcia because he's fought on the same Bellator cards as me. So I was like, wow, that's actually a good fight. Like, that's a really good matchup. I'll, um, I'll tell you. So Steve Garcia is how I learned about the regional MMA business. Yes, with the ticket sellers. Ticket yeah. Sellers. Yeah. Because I showed up. He was fighting on a New Mexico card. I get there. I get to the venue like two hours before the event. All And there's like, there had to be like 40, 50 people just waiting outside the ticket window. Mm-hmm. One of the Bellator people uh, lets me in, and I go, "Who, who, who are these people here to see?" They go, "Oh, Steve Garcia. He was the first fight. He's now after the main card." Yep. <laughs> Sounds similar to me. I've been there. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that is yeah. When you can um, 
look, when you can sell a lot of tickets, you can make some good money on the regional scene. Yeah, not bad at all. Uh, you know, if you tickets get- are going. Yeah, if you got the right the right contract and the right comp, you you, you make <laughs> some things work. <laughs> yeah, if if especially, uh, you know, I, I've been at regional shows when you see the ticket money get turned in. There there can be a lot of money that gets thrown on the table. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and uh, you know you should be rewarded the more tickets you sell. Let me just say, scale that, scale that percentage. <laughs> Spoken like a true fighter who can sell some tickets. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. Oh man, but uh, but yeah, we'll be back on Awesome this week on Thursday and on Saturday. I will be on Awesome on. Uh, let's see, I've got the MLB show on Thursday. I'm doing the NASCAR show now on Saturdays. Are killing it, bro. Uh, and let me tell you, I believe like, I got MLB show on MLB or NBA on Friday. One of the two. Yeah, you're, yeah, dude, you're killing it. And uh, you know, you're the best host in the business. Look, look, and no, I have to thank Alex and the team over Osmo for something. Because now I can watch sports all the time. I just got to tell my wife, honey, I, I this is show prep. <laughs> There's your out. You're good. Yeah. Uh, Show prep. Uh huh. That's smart. I like that. You know, she'll watch watch basketball with me. She doesn't want to watch baseball, which, you know, it's understandable. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a slow moving game. You can't hate on my baseball. Baseball is my first true love. But you can't deny it's, it can be slow at times. Of course. Of course it can. Um, you know, me getting cut from the baseball team my junior year um, is actually what really pushed me towards martial arts because I was oh. just so – yeah, I was so pissed off. And, uh, you know, I – we were at a very political high school and I had baseball tryouts and everything. And, you know, freshman year played, uh, sophomore year played. But we had a certain thing set up where for varsity you had to be personally invited. So it's almost like you were already – on the team if you received an invitation so it wasn't an actual tryout so i was at a very very political school and never received an invitation and you know i showed up to the jv uh the jv tryouts and basically if you're a junior you're not on jv you know what i'm saying like you're you're on varsity so i already knew that i was not going to make the jv team because they wouldn't allow somebody my year they you know you have to be varsity or bust but I wanted to show my skills. Like, look, you guys didn't invite me. Long story short, I didn't make it. I, I, I got cut from the baseball team. And I remember I was so heartbroken because my dream growing up, play for the Norwich Navigators. Play for the Norwich Navigators. That was my dream. You know, we were the Yankee farm system. It was perfect. And uh, I remember the day I got cut and I was crying my eyes out like a little 17-year-old baby. And I didn't know what to do. And the only thing that I know how to do at the end of the day is fighting in martial arts. So I slammed my trunk, drove my car to my my gym. I got my bag. I walked up the four flights of stairs. I dropped my bag and I said to my dad, I'm here. And I've been in the gym every day since. I did not know that about you. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's like uh, that's kind of what really pushed me into it. And uh, I always trained. But like for me, I grew up with karate. So karate, you do katas, you do self-defense, mm-hmm. you do weapons. None of that interested me. But I did it just because I wanted to, pa- you know, to make my dad happy and to, uh, you know, pass the style along. But the one thing I always wanted to do is fight. I remember like, Dad, please just let me fight. Please let me fight. No, you can't fight unless you do weapons or kata. 
So I'd have to do those just so I could fight and feel rewarded. So at the end of the day, when, when I felt like my world was upside down, I didn't know what to do. And I remember just walking into the gym, crying my eyes out, and I dropped my bag. And I said, I'm here. I want to fight. And uh, that's how I started pushing and fighting, kickboxing and MMA. And then now here we are. And my next fight, whenever that is, it'll be my 10th professional. Can you believe that? Okay, hold on. So obviously we know your dad's history in martial arts. Yep. Was mom on board for you fighting? Yeah, she was uh, because as a kid, right, I always played baseball. I played fall ball. I played regular season baseball as well. And every weekend um, – oh, I should say every other weekend, I was competing in karate tournaments. So like I was fighting on every other weekend. Okay. Uh, was I was around that competition and I was excelling. I was number one in New England for quite some time and, uh, you know – she knew like, okay, he needs to do something. And my dad's like, it's in his blood. So I had no choice. And, uh, you know, it was whatever I wanted to do. And my mom knew how much work I put in. Like I've always been a very driven individual. So it's pretty cool. I, I want to make it big one day in martial arts. I mean, and, uh, you know, give back. And when one dream is, you know, shut down for somebody, you know, sometimes it opens doors that you never really considered before. No, well, it's it's we all we all have our own journey, man. Yeah, man. You know, hell, I've been at this radio podcasting thing since uh, two thousand two. Damn boy, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, man, that's... it's been a long journey, man. Look where you're at now, man. Working for the Bucks. I hope you guys have a season this year because of all the timing in the world. Like, what what terrible timing. Like Jason is finally working for the Bucks, who have an incredible team this year. Like uh, you've, you've been covering them for a while, but they yeah, have. I've been with uh, my my first year with the team was 2004. I was but, do, doing uh, the John Gruden show, um, some player shows, and then uh, started working game days on 2006. And uh, since 2009, I've I've done all games. So uh, so literally, I think. I, I don't. I don't think there's a a stadium I have not been to. That's cool. That's a cool little bucket list. Now, going into a season, have you ever been more excited than you are this season with Brady? Uh, I'm excited every year, but yeah. not. But this this year, it's it's. I mean, look, it's, you know, right? Every, look, look, everyone in Tampa is excited. You know, yeah. it's it, it's still kind of like you see. You know Brady throwing the Gronk, and they're wearing Buccaneer, you know shirts. It's, it's still a, it, it's still like man, it's like okay, this is this is happening. It's uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, teams are in full camp, and uh, I'm preparing like we're going to be in New Orleans September 13th. I hope so, bro. I hope it works out for you guys. You know, it's uh, but you know, I mean, look, it's my thing is I'm taking it one day at a time, Pete. No man, 2020 is crazy right now, and. Uh, it's crazy to think it's August already, and we're talking football coming up soon. So, man, I hope next year is better than 2020. I think anything could be better than 2020. My goodness. Look, I just look – I know what I got tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, one day at a time, man, because pff, since Kobe died, I feel like the world literally turned upside down. Like, uh, I will tell you this. I'll never forget that line Shaq said during his memorial service. When he it was Rick Fox and somebody else was complaining about Kobe not passing the ball, and 
they go to Shaq and say, man, you got to talk to him. You got to talk to him. He goes, all right. He goes, Kobe, there's no I in team. He goes, but there's an I. Uh, he goes, oh, what was it? There's an I in win or something <laughs> yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. That's just Kobe's mindset, bro. Like, at the end of the day, all he cares about is winning. And, uh, you know, if it meant he took 50 shots, he's going to shoot it 50 times. Well, look, when you're when you got that kind of talent, you you do that. I mean, you know, I mean, look at look at what he did. It's like a ripple effect on the league. What he did, you know, with the 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 girls teams and how successful they became the black mamas, I believe they were called. Uh, And then you think about like some of the individual work where he was working with Jason Tatum and you saw how Jason Tatum really, really improved his game and starts to almost look reminiscent of Kobe. It's crazy. It is crazy. And, uh. You know, it's sad that he's gone, but, you know, there's plenty of other fighters, uh, plenty of fighters, plenty of other players that, that are planning to give back. So it's it's a cool thing when you see, like, the, you know, the icons of the sport giving back to the younger generations. You're being like me when I'm calling NASCAR drivers fighters. I listened to that, and I was dying laughing. <laughs> I'm like, you're like, the other fighter, I mean, the other driver. Uh, it was good work, man. Good work. Oh, man, yeah. I, I call myself mid-word. Like, oh, no, that, that, that's not right. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. It's, uh, oh, man. That was, and even Phil, like, he, he kind of laughed it off, too. Like, oh, you know, I get it. I get it, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, yes. but. Of course, you got to hit that thumbs up button here on YouTube. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. It's a brand new channel right here, Fight HQ. Of course, uh, we'll. Uh, if there's anything you want to uh, hear Pete talk about, give a fighter's perspective on things. Uh, hit us up on social media. He's at Pete the Heat MMA. Of course, I am at Jason underscore Ford. Of course, uh, be sure to check us out on social media so you'll know exactly when shows are dropping. When we're going to be on Osmo and things along those lines. So, Pete, as always, great talking to you. We'll we'll talk here in the very near future, brother. Yeah, brother, sounds good. Thanks for joining us, guys. This is a Real Animals with Captain Mike Anderson Quick Fix on Radio Influence Tampa Bay. What's the coolest place that you think you've ever fished, Ryan? I mean, if you, uh, and I don't want to say, I don't want to say the only, like, a lot of times I ask the question, you know, if you could only fish one one place for the rest of your life, where would it be? But with you, I feel that might be boogering you up. I think we got to ask you, you know, what's one of the coolest places that you've fished? Because I know you fished a pile of them. If, if you were going to, if you were going to grab your wife by the hand tonight and say, babe, pack your bags tomorrow, we're going fishing here. Where would it be? Yeah. Let's see that there, there's the double-edged sword. Cause uh, <laughs> I, in my mind going around the world that the cooler, when it comes to fishing aspect, what I've learned in all my, and I've been to, I don't know how many countries and places. And I mean, I've fished, my bucket list is, is getting shorter and shorter. I've kind of been everywhere around the world I've wanted to. And uh, I love them all for different reasons. But what I've learned after all this traveling and fishing is that the cooler, if you will, if that's a word, like the, the cooler, or the better, the fishing, it's usually the, um, more boredom or maybe not the best accommodations. Um, right. A lot of these places are, are known for fishing, don't really have any, you know, nightlife or land life or beaches or anything. So if, right. if it's a wife, it's, it's definitely Costa Rica. Um, if it's uh, me, I'm grabbing a boat and I want to, you know, someone gives me a million dollars to go fish somewhere for a month. Um, I'd, I'd probably have to say Cat Island uh, over in the Bahamas between San Sal and Rum K, which is uh 
really the middle of nowhere. It's a rock and a dock. It was, uh, there's a, a marina called Hawk's Nest. It's, it's 32 boat slips and uh, four basically jail cells. Um, that, that, that were the hotels because all the boats there are sport fish. Um, so it's, it's all sport fish boats that go in. They all stay on the boat. Um, but the restaurant there, there's, there's an airstrip. I think it's only 200 people that live on the island. And wow. there's, uh, there's a strip for people to come in and out and get their boats and leave their captains. The Real Animals Podcast with Captain Mike Anderson can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and ritampabay.com.